0: Good to see you. Always a joy to be here with all of you um, and so excited I got to be honest so excited uh, to be teaching again after a short break um, I've taken the, the last two weeks um, others have come and, and shared and it's just been a huge blessing to me uh, as well to know that i can I can come and, and, and sit and, and and worship and listen to uh, god's word and receive truth. It's always a blessing, but nothing uh, replaces being here teaching you. Um, It's uh, certainly what I'm passionate about and excited to do all the time, and so let's not waste any more time. Um, If you have a Bible with you, I hope you do today, uh, turn with me to the book of Esther, the book of Esther. Uh, If you are newer to our gathering, uh, we actually began a teaching series through this book in late February. Can you believe it was that? that long ago, late February, and then we paused the series at the end of March as we are entering into the Easter season. We paused, we did a, a, a short sermon series on worship, and then Easter Sunday, and, uh, and now we're, we're back in it, and over the next four Sundays, including today, we're going to be wrapping up spring, but also wrapping up the book of, of Esther. Um, but since it's been a while, let me get us all caught up and on the same page, okay? I'm going to do my best to get us all squared away here, all right, so bear with me. We know that the story of Esther takes place during the Persian Empire, uh, largely in the ancient city of Susa, uh, which is today modern-day Iran. Okay? And this book, the book of Esther, is all about the hidden hand of God, the hand of God working through um, unlikely people in an unlikely place at unlikely times. Uh, You see, God's Old Testament people had found themselves living in Persia due to a forced exile. And as Esther opens, it's been about a hundred years since that exile took place. It's a very dark situation. Uh, The people, God's people, are in a foreign land They have nothing of their own. And worst of all, amidst all their trials and uncertain future, God seems silent. He seems absent from them. Well, uh, things go from bad to worse because we open up chapter 3 and we read there that Haman, who was the prime minister of Persia at the time, issues, he decides, out of rage in his heart, anger in his heart decides to issue an order for the genocide of all of the Jews who are living in the entire Persian Empire. And it just so happens that Esther, the queen of Persia, is Jewish. Although, twist, nobody knows that because she's kept part of that, or that part of our identity hidden. Well, some time goes by, and we learn that Esther is faced with a major crossroads in her life. Uh, She must choose, make a decision. Keep herself safe and hidden, or go to her husband, the king, and risk revealing her identity in an attempt to save her people. And so what does she choose? Well, after three days of praying and fasting, in faith, Esther chooses to follow God and to risk her life by going to the king, right? That's chapter 5. By God's grace, we learn that she lives. She's shown mercy by the king, and then we start to see her plan unfold. She begins by inviting King Ahasuerus and Haman, the prime minister, to this feast, feast number one. That feast finishes, and at the end of that feast, she calls the two of them to another feast that would happen the very next day. But here's what's interesting. Um, in the midst of her plan, there's another plan happening. The night after that first feast, Haman, the prime minister, also has a plan, a plan to murder a man named Mordecai, who was Esther's cousin um, and adoptive father. But what happens? Okay? In the midst of that, that night, actually it's the middle of the night, after the first feast, we see that, we learn that God's invisible hand moves. That King Ahasuerus has a sleepless night, we're told. He gets out his his books to read the history of his people, and he learns that night that Mordecai saved his life years before. And because of that, he decides to reward Mordecai greatly. And ironically, Haman is the one who has to honor him. And so Haman is left embarrassed. He's left sort of his head hung low, full of shame. He, he goes back home. He's looking for sort of empathy, sympathy, pity. But things happen so fast this day. There's not a lot of time to be emotional because the king's servants come knocking on Haman's door and tell him, the second feast is ready, Esther's ready, the king is ready, come with us. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 7. And what we're going to see today through this text is that chapter 7 is ultimately about God's just judgment of his enemies. Uh, It's a a challenging chapter to, to listen to, Okay, I'll be honest with you. Uh, and it 's a challenging chapter to teach, but this topic is it 's necessary, um, although it 's a bit controversial. Uh, many have wondered outside of the church, and maybe even you 're here today, and you wonder this: like how could a loving God judge people? How could a, a good and gracious and loving God punish people? But what I hope to show you today and what I hope you learn today with me is that God's justice is both right and good. And so that's where we're heading today, trying to deepen our understanding of God's justice. So let me walk us through this passage, and then as I've done through the first six chapters, I'll finish our time together with some thoughts about how this applies to our lives today. So this is how the chapter begins. Look at it with me. Esther chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And we'll pause there. Okay. A simple statement, but again, a very complex situation. A lot has happened. We just talked about it, but a, a lot has happened in the last 24 hours. So I want you, again, we've got to get inside this story. I want you to think about this scene. Haman is there. There's three parties. Haman is there. He's there with a bruised ego. Uh, He has just been humiliated hours before. Um, And at the same time, he certainly still wants to find a way to kill his enemy, Mordecai. He wants to hang him on the gallows that he built for him. At the same time, Esther is there, the second party. She's probably very anxious. Because why? Well, this is the moment... It's about to come where she's going to ask the king to rescue her people. And she has no idea how the king or Haman will respond. So her life is literally on the line. And then the third party we know that's there is the king. He's there and sort of funny, he's oblivious to all of this. (laughs) I'm sure he is curious about what Esther is going to ask of him. He knows she has a question But he is mostly just there, enjoying the food, and we'll see shortly, enjoying the wine. And so we continue. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So this was a polite way of the king saying to Esther, ask whatever you want and it's yours. Anything you ask of me, I'm going to give it to you. And this is the third time now that King Ahasuerus has asked Esther what she wants. And so there is no more delaying this. This is the moment she needs to ask him. And so understand, again, this is a very tense situation. Esther right now is before, in front of, the two most powerful men in the world, the two most powerful men in the empire. She knows that the king was the one who approved Haman's plan for the genocide of all the Jewish people. His signature is there on the edict, but she doesn't know why. Why would he choose to do that? Was it partly the king's idea? Does he also hate the Jews? Was it for all the money that he's promised? From doing this, she doesn't know. And perhaps most significantly, we again need to keep in mind that if the king says no to Esther's request here, that her identity as a Jew would be outed. And then she would fall underneath the order of the genocide as well. And so this is both a delicate and dangerous place for her. There's a lot at risk. But Esther responds to the question. Verse three. Then Queen Esther answered, King, if I have found favor in your sight, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, listen to this, we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. That should sound familiar. Those are actually the exact words that came out of the edict itself. It's strategic. And then she says, if we had been sold merely as slaves to you, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And so Esther's words here are strategic and they are carefully Chosen. Notice that she doesn't begin by accusing Haman, this this evil Haman. Look what he's done. No, she attempts here first to to pull at the king's heartstrings, if you if you will. But also at the same time, she's appealing to his self interest. She knows he's full of himself, and so he's she's pulling at his self interest as well. In effect, she's saying, "Look, like I'm not here to complain. Or I'm not complaining to you. I'm not grumbling." That if if myself and, and all the Jewish people were sold into slavery to the Persians, then I wouldn't have even brought this up. Then you can kill us. It's no problem. Do whatever you want. But that's not the case. We've been serving in your kingdom, basically is what she's saying. We've been participating. We're working. And so for me and my people to die would actually be of great loss to you, she says. And by grace, her appeal works. Look at verse five. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, look at this, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? I just love imagining the, the banquet table here, the situation. You can imagine Haman sitting there, right? Swirling around his glass of wine, full belly, clueless as to what's going on. And apparently, the king himself has no idea what he has done. He he doesn't recall the edict that he has signed. Maybe, Maybe he just signed so many of those things, he doesn't even care. But he doesn't remember. It's like five years ago. All he knows is that someone was attempting to kill his queen. Someone's attempting to kill his queen and her people. And at that news, he is furious. He says, who did this? Who would dare do this? And then Esther responds, verse 6. And Esther said, a foe, an enemy. You can imagine she points right at him. That wicked Haman. So at this, at this, Haman probably just choked on his drink, right? Right? His name is called out, and by the way, this is the moment that Esther, being Jewish, is made public. This is how she does it. Both Haman and the king didn't know that information. But now, Haman knows. He just found out that he unknowingly included the queen into his genocidal order. Ouch been a very bad, awful, rough day for Haman. Let's keep going. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking. It takes a lot to get the king from that table, right? And he went into the palace garden. And so what does the king do, right? What we all do when we're furious, right? I go outside to cool off, right? That's what we do. That's what he does. He goes outside to cool off. He is just beside himself. And think about his day. Earlier that day, in the early morning, like he hasn't slept well, okay? And he just learned about Mordecai, who is Jewish, was loyal to him. How a Jewish man saved his life. He just found out his wife, is also Jewish for the first time. And on top of that, he just learned that Haman, his prime minister, his second-in-command, his right-hand man, forced his hand into signing an edict to kill all of those Jewish people, including his wife. So Haman looks like a traitor here. By the way, by the law, this is treason. And meanwhile he goes outside to cool. Haman knows he's finished. He's cooked, right? It's over for him. There is no mercy coming from this king. The historical record tells us that. And so look what he does. The king goes outside, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king that might seem like a rational response to you, one that makes sense. Actually, this is a very key detail in the story that you'd miss if you don't know the history. It's very important to understand something about Persian law. You see, no one in the king's court, none of his officials, none of his servants, not even the prime minister, was allowed to be alone with the queen. That is illegal. In fact, in fact, even if the king was in the room, no man, no man could be closer than seven steps from the queen. You do that pace, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, right? Here to the edge of the stage, here. That's as close as you could get to the queen. I don't know what in the world he thought was going to happen between seven steps, but that's the law. We're taking no risks. So technically, get this now, Technically, when the king leaves the room in anger to go outside, Haman needed to leave the room as well. That's the law. As soon as the king left, it's him and the queen. I got to get up and go. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He stayed to beg for his life. And that was not wise. It actually ultimately leads to his death, verse eight. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, "He's beside himself." He says, "Will he even will he even assault my queen in my presence in my own house?" So again, this was unthinkable, being so close to Esther. And, and I want us to know this as well. It's not, that, it's not likely that Haman actually assaulted the queen. That's not the picture here. Um, the, the picture here is that he just violated Persian law. He's on the couch with her, like almost at her lap, begging for her forgiveness. He violated Persian law, and he was outwardly disrespecting the queen. And that's an assault on her and him. And so this, this coupled with his treason, was reason for his death. It's reason for his death, which now the king orders. As the word left the mouth, look at this, as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So all of a sudden, all his servants come. It's like straight mafia here, right? He's like, That's the end of him. And at that moment, there's no more pleading. There's no more begging. They cover his mouth. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said this. Moreover, I love this. He just throws this in here. Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. He cooled down. So here is the ultimate irony. This is an ironic book as we've been going through it, studying through it. It's an ironic book. The ultimate irony, the gallows that Haman built for Mordecai to be killed on just 24 hours earlier, was now used for his own death. By the way, gallows, what is that? Um, You could picture um, a very large wooden stake, single pillar stake, very sharp on the top. What happened is they would bring you up to the top of that stake and then they would force your body down on that stake and impale you, okay? Usually up through your thigh and then through your chest and then back out your neck. Okay? Not to give you too many details. <laughs> I just wanted to see all the cringes. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Last time I preached it was Easter, right? So now I get to be a little darker. <laughs> and then, that wasn't the end, the end though. What they would do after that though is that they would just leave you up there. You would hang there. For two reasons. One is a warning. If you disobey the empire or the king, this is what will happen to you. But two, this is utter humiliation. Typically, you would be naked, by the way. Historians tell us that uh, the Roman Empire, which would come later, they took this model, these gallows, um, and they perfected it. And we call that crucifixion. So he is hanging there in humiliation, 75 feet high. You can imagine this. 22 meters high. Seven and a half basketball hoops, right, for those of you. It's high. Almost, what is this again, 35? Three times this from floor to ceiling. He's on public display for the entire empire. And what's interesting is, at that, the chapter ends. Haman is gone. Esther and Mordecai are safe for now. But the story isn't over. Because we know that the edict to kill all the Jews is still in place. It is signed and it is very difficult to overturn. Which means the question still remains, will the Jews be saved? Will God's people be saved? And we'll find that out next week in chapter 8. Cliffhanger. <laughs> Another one. But as we finish chapter 7, this is where now I want to just take a step back and ask, uh, what is this chapter, and up till now, wh- what is this really about? Or or what should we take away from this? And there is quite a bit here. We had gone in a couple different directions, but I I specifically want to focus on the person or the character of Haman, because there's actually a lot that we can learn from him and learn from his life. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says this. "Now, these things happen to them. Um, that's speaking of Old Testament events and people. So these things happen to them as an example. Uh, but they are written down for our instruction, meaning that we are to learn from examples of the, the examples of those in the Bible. We are to be instructed by the characters and the figures of the Bible, and by the way, that includes both the positive examples and the negative examples. Certainly, Haman is a negative example, but what can we then learn from Haman? What instruction can we take? From him, Well, if you step back, what you see is that, especially if you understand the Old Testament and early in Jesus' life, that Haman is really just one in a long line of enemies of God who are exalted in the eyes of the world and yet ultimately judged. Uh, think about Pharaoh. Or think about the Philistines, a person like Goliath. Uh, Think about the king of the Babylonian Empire, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Or you can think of someone like Herod of the Romans. And now Haman here, the prime minister of Persia. In the eyes of the world, all of these men were winning. Power, fame, wealth, privilege, status. Okay, they were the ones, they had all the Instagram followers, right? They looked unstoppable. And yet, what we learn over and over and over again from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation is that they were missing what mattered most, God. They all worshipped themselves, and desired honor and glory and fame for themselves. And because of that, for all of them, every single one of them, their end was destruction. And so, listen, all the judgments of God's enemies throughout the scriptures, including Haman's here in Esther, all of them actually serve us. They are foreshadows to us in that they ultimately point us to God's final just judgment and the rescue of his people. See, that the scriptures are clear all over the scriptures in places like Revelation 20 that there is a great day of judgment coming. We are are warned of this again and again because God wants us to be prepared for that day. And Haman's life and Haman's death, his judgment again gives us a glimpse of what will ultimately happen to those who live for themselves and choose not to live for God. And, And so with that in view, I want to provide us with three warnings today. Three warnings that I see related to God's just judgment. I take out of Esther. Because sometimes, here's a, it's important for you as you read the scriptures. Sometimes you're reading the scriptures and God will instruct you through his commands. Sometimes God uh, does that. He instructs you through encouragement, words of encouragement. Other times you're reading through the Bible and you'll see that there are promises and we can be instructed by his promises, but there are other times in the scriptures that we are instructed by warnings. And that's true here. So let's look at these together. First, there's a warning about the dangers of idolatry. Number one, we learned this from Esther, specifically Haman's life. There's a warning about the dangers of idolatry. Haman's life is an example of the dangers of idolatry. To put it simply, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than our creator. Trusting in created things other than our creator for our hope, happiness, security, and satisfaction. And I know that we don't see Haman's idolatry specifically pointed out or stated in Esther, but it's certainly clear that it exists in his life. And it's also clear to me that we are meant to learn from it. You see, Haman's hope, his happiness, his security, and his satisfaction, his idol was his desire for power, his desire for control, his desire for wealth, his desire for Privilege. And we know this is true because when his power and when his control was threatened, he was even willing to go as far as removing an entire people group, all the Jews, to get that power, to get that control, to get what he wanted. He believed that power would give him ultimate happiness and satisfaction. He believed that control and authority would give him lasting peace. But what he finds is that living for something other than God always leads to destruction. Now, in part, here in this life, but actually later in full. And this will be true of anyone anyone who lives for something other than God. Right? And that's why this is a warning. See, this is important to understand. The opposite. I think sometimes we miss this. The the opposite of having a living trust in God is actually not atheism. It's idolatry. An idol can be anything, or it's whatever serves as a God replacement in our lives. And so, for example, instead of finding ultimate safety in God, we look for that in our money, right? Right? Or instead of finding ultimate meaning in God, we might look for that in a relationship. Instead of finding ultimate worth in God, we might look for that in our career. That's why careers change so much. That's why we're, no money is ever enough and why we all desire for more relationships, meaningful relationships. Right, so I could go on and on. We, and, and we all wrestle with this because idolatry is actually built into our sinful nature. We're designed this, not designed this way, but we live this way. That we all look to and, and seek to find fulfillment of all kinds outside of God. And don't misunderstand me, right? Money, your family, like we just dedicated children today, right? Uh, relationships, kids, career, right? all that. All those are good things. Many times they're actually God given gifts, but they become have the potential to become bad things in our life when they become God-like things in our life. See, listen, even God-given gifts in our life can become bad things in our life when they become the God of our life. Meaning, when we look to them to provide us what only can, what God can provide. Do you see that? Right, don't miss this, because again, this is for all of us, myself included. You're either in one of two categories today. We all have idols either lurking or dwelling in our hearts, or we have idols tempting us around our hearts. And one of the primary ways we can identify what those idols are is to think about what makes you feel most threatened. What, what freaks you out? Say it that way. What, what gives you great anxiety in your spirit? Like, for example, like what could happen to you? Or what would it take? What, what would have to be taken from you that would cause you to be sinfully angry? Over-emotional? Fearful? Hanging your head low, devastated like Haman. What could cause that in your life? Right? The answer to that will likely lead you to where you find your ultimate sense of hope, of happiness, of significance and security. Uh, again, one of Haman's idols was power. Right? It was authority. And how do we know that? Well, because remember what happens. Mordecai, the Jew, makes a conscious decision that when When Haman walks by him, he will not bow down to him. Everyone else does. But Mordecai, one man, will not bow to Haman. And when Mordecai Mordecai does that, and Haman walks by and sees Mordecai standing there, with everyone else bowing, Haman freaks out. And from that point on, he made it his life purpose have not only him destroyed but every single one of his people that's how much he thirsted for power it's an idol for him or if that's too extreme for you because you're not likely going to walk down the street and everyone bow to you maybe too disconnected from your story I'll, i'll give you one of mine i'll do that i don't think this idol has my heart i don't think this idol is in my heart but i do know that it's tempting it's lurking. For me, uh, it's my career. It's my position as a pastor, standing here with this microphone. I really want to be a good pastor. I do. Deeply. I want to lead well. Uh, I want to give people a vision for their life. Um, I want to be an excellent uh, teacher of God's word, of the Bible. I want to be known as someone uh, that reputation, oh, he, he's a great teacher of God's word, right? I, I want to be faithful in trying to grow God's kingdom, God's church in a really healthy way. Now, is that wrong? No, uh, of course not. Those are all good, God-honoring things for me to strive towards. But where being a pastor could be an idol for me, is finding my happiness in my ability to lead well. Finding my ultimate significance in being known as, having the reputation of a a great teacher of the word. And if I'm not careful, I can find my sense of identity and actually security and peace in all of you. You have a lot of power. In all of you believing that I'm a good pastor. see the difference. And so what is that for you? Do any idols have your heart? And if not, are you at least aware of the idols that are lurking in and around your heart, potentially tempting you to go astray? Listen, Jesus tells us so clearly that when we build our lives on anything else but him and his truth, that we are building our lives on shifting, sinking sand. And it's only a matter of time before everything in and around you, including yourself, will collapse, crumble, just like Haman. And so Haman's life is a subtle Warning to us to not trust the things of this world above and beyond the God of this world. It's a warning to us, a reminder for us to look inward once again and to ask ourselves, who or what am I trusting in? What am I living my life for? What makes me feel ultimately safe and secure We also learn from Haman, number two, a warning of God's just judgment. There is a warning of God's just judgment here. It's sobering, really. When we think about Haman's death, it's sobering. It should make you think, uh, because it's so sudden. And and really, as you read this story, we, we find Haman's death is totally out of his control. I mean, he was, he was literally on top of the world one day with all the wealth, all the power, all the prestige. He's living the dream. And then in one day, 24 hours, he loses everything. He is hanged and killed, murdered in disgrace in a day. But this again is a foreshadowing for us that when Jesus returns and he will come, That things, everything, will suddenly turn. That when Jesus comes back, he will judge the world in perfect righteousness. And each and every one of us must give an account of our lives. That's Romans 14. That for those who belong to Jesus, by faith in Jesus, an imperfect faith, but genuine faith, their sins will be forgiven and they will enter into eternal joy with Jesus. But on the other hand, all who insisted on living for those idols, the Bible is clear that they will be judged and receive hell, which is eternal separation from God. And and I know this is an emotional topic. It actually, it seems extreme. Eternal separation from God. Hell forever for living a life like 70 to 80 years the, the wrong way. That, that's what this is. Right? I've even asked myself that question, but here's the thing. And I realized this not that long ago, actually, that this is extreme and it's actually supposed to be. Because the punishment fits the crime. Listen, rebellion and disobedience against an eternally holy and worthy God is worthy of eternal consequences. I think about it this way. If, if someone's a murderer and they receive life in prison via uh, an imperfect human court, how much more a penalty do rebels against A perfect God deserved before a perfect divine court. And we we know this, right? We know this. You've watched TV and, and heard the stories. Criminals always think their judgment is greater than what the crime deserves. It's not fair. But that says way more about us and our hearts than it says about God. That if we could comprehend the glory and the holiness and the beauty of God, see him for who he he truly is, and at the same time, if we could understand the depths of our sin, our waywardness, our, our rebellion against him, our constant turning away from him, we would say, this is what I truly deserve. I don't deserve to be with God ever. Ever. He is right 100% of the time. I am wrong 100% of the time, period. And so eternal separation from Him does not exist because God is cruel or that because God is unjust or He's mean, right? It means that it it exists because we are idolaters and that God is holy because His standards are perfection. And every single one of us falls short of the glory of his perfection. right? And deep down, if we're honest with ourselves, I, I believe, I truly do, we all know this is right. Think about this, right? An earthly judge who, who would knowingly, outwardly overlook crimes again and again, who released the most horrific criminals you could think of, who constantly left injustice unpunished, what would we say about that judge? Terrible, right? Fire him. He's a criminal himself. He needs to be removed. And so how much more should we expect of a perfect judge who is the very source and standard of all that is true and all that is good and all that is right? See, if God doesn't punish our sin that would actually make him unjust not a good judge and therefore he would not be worthy of our worship so hear me god's judgment against our sin is good all right, we all want justice don't we we all want justice that's why we flock to the marvel movie, movies it's impossible to get a ticket at IMAX at Yongsan. It drives me crazy. People are on there clicking, like, as fast as they can, right? We all go there. We love justice. We love, like, we, you all know the ending. of Every single one of those movies. doesn't matter if it's one movie or if it takes 17 movies. We know the end. That's why we love, love Superman and Batman, right? The Dark Knight, Justice, right? The Justice League. It's called that for a reason, so we, we want justice. We love and desire to see justice. Our problem is we don't want to be judged. We want grace for ourselves while justice for everyone else. But listen, God shows no favoritism. There are real consequences for living our lives apart from him. And Haman's life points us so clearly to that. God's just judgment. And then finally, through Haman's life, we see this, number three, a warning to not misunderstand the cross. A warning to not misunderstand the cross. In our context, I think most people think if there is a God, if God exists, then he wouldn't eternally punish Nice or sincere people, right? Have you heard that question? Have you said that yourself? Of course. But of course, the problem with that objection and thinking is that it completely misunderstands how we are made right with God. It completely misunderstands Jesus and it completely misunderstands the cross. You see, Jesus came to this earth To save unrighteous, sinful, uh, bad people from God's just judgment. And he did so on the cross. He did not come to to save good people, right, who think they have their acts together, who are living a pretty cleaned up life, like compared to others, at least they think that. Right? And this is so important because to say that God accepts nice, good, tolerant people, is to say that we are saved or can be saved by our morality, by our goodness, by our kindness. But if that's true, what about everybody else? What about me or people like you? What about all the unkind people, the bad ones, the intolerant, the guilt-ridden idolaters? Is there any hope for them? Well, Jesus' death, the cross says, Yes, there is. The gospel says, yes. No matter who you are and what you've done, you can be saved from God's just judgment because Jesus lived, because he died on the cross, and because he rose from the grave. This is the truth of the gospel. So listen, if you're relying on your own goodness today, your own merit You're you're making it by, like you look at the rest of the world, your coworkers, like your friends, family members, and like, I'm better than them, right? I give to some charity now and then, I serve people, whatever. I come to church now and then, like I'm pretty good by standards. If you're living or relying on your own goodness, just like I did for the first 19 years of my life, the Bible says very clearly, you are lost, that I was lost. And today, this is a warning for you, actually, that that you are in danger, just as I was in danger. And I would be unfaithful and unkind to you to say anything different to you. You're in danger. See, what, what happened on the cross, this is why we talk about it, or I talk about it every single time, I get up here and we're here together. What I talk about the cross is Jesus literally took our hell for us so that he could give us heaven with him. On the cross, our rebellion, our idolatry, God's just judgment, it was actually poured out on Jesus so that in turn his love could be poured out on us. This is why Jesus spoke of hell and judgment as much as he did because he came to actually do something about it. Not to make us feel bad, but to alert us to the seriousness of our situation. To tell us, yes, you, you are very, very sick. You're sick, but I have come to heal you. Yes, you, you are in danger. This is a crisis, but I have come to rescue you. Look, I'm here before you. You are living as my enemy, but I am here to love you. I mean, come on. Try to wrap your minds around this with me. I deserve only judgment, and yet Jesus came to me. He came to you to give us undeserved, unmeasurable love. Where else could you ever go to hear this kind of message? That's why we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. So let me sum this up for us. Our greatest crisis today is our guilt before God and his just judgment. But by faith in Jesus We are no longer in crisis mode, friends. We are free. We are secure. We are forgiven. But understand, understand, Jesus today is calling us to make a decision. We must decide. We have to decide. will we go to him in humility and live for him? Or will we resist him in pride like Haman? You know, I, I realized this after, I don't know, it's been now over 10 years of doing this at least. I used to think that there's like two categories of people when I was young. There's good people and there's bad people. I realized that's not even close to being true. No such thing. There are humble people and there are proud people, period. What will you choose? For those of us who have already made that decision to humble ourselves, to follow Jesus, the message is, by the way, just as relevant to us. Don't think that you get to skirt around today. Because we need to remember what we've been saved from. We need to remember what we deserve. We need to remember who we would be apart from Christ. We need to remember because our hearts tend to forget. Right? They tend to drift towards those idols, don't they? Or am I alone? They do. And so let's remember God's great love for us displayed in Jesus' coming to take on our judgment. Let's be aware of the idols in and around our hearts that try to lure us away, take us away from God and his truth. And let's learn from Haman's story today that that idols destroy, that, that God's just judgment is coming, and that therefore there is an ongoing need in every single one of our lives to return to the cross. Amen? Let me pray for you.